Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This episode of the Racket Magazine podcast is brought to you by Sergio Tacchini, offering iconic tracksuits, classic polos, and the new Youngline sneaker. Originally designed in the mid-1980s, it's our favorite spring silhouette, and it's back. You can get it now at SergioTacchini.com, and follow them on Instagram at SergioTacchini underscore official for updates. Enter the promo code RACKETMAG at checkout, and you'll get 30% off your order. I wanted to be a pediatrician. Renee, I love this week's episode. Yeah, me too. I mean, it's so interesting when you do a lot of these pods, and for me, I've known this particular person for a long time. I mean, we're talking like 30 years. And I always love when I do a podcast and I get I get goosebumps or I get moments where I'm like, oh my God, I had no idea about that. Or I had no idea of that. Um, and we got that a couple of times in this particular pod, which was so exciting for me straight away. Yeah. I mean, the fact that, I couldn't believe when she actually started playing tennis. I mean, when you talk about a young phenom that she was, you think, oh, well, she had to start when she was like birthed to basically, but no, it's it's incredible. I feel like every 10 minutes or so, there was something kind of jaw dropping in this Mm -hmm. podcast, whether it was funny jaw dropping or really poignant or really moving. I cried, obviously, which, you know, I try not to do at every show, but this one, I couldn't help it. I mean, you know. Yeah, well, I'll, I, I matched you at that <laughs> exact moment. And it, we, it's right at the end of the pod. So, you know, really stick to the end of this one because it's worth it. Um, but it really got the both of us because I think it, it touched both of us in a way that we were like, wow, you know, she has gone through a lot. She is, you, I mean, she's discovered things about herself you got to give mary credit because she's come out of it and has been and has always been the nicest human being i literally truly there's never a time where i felt like she was any different to the first day i met her to the last day i met her and uh and to today um so it's going to be a really great listen for everybody you're going to learn a lot about an extraordinary young woman um who's really going to make a difference in a lot of people's lives just by listening to this and i do want to just say i'm really sorry because all the really like um Things in this pod that are a little bit outrageous, you know, just happen to be also me um, and Mary and Mary taking care of me. Um, But I just I needed to tell some of those stories so people understood what kind of human being Mary is just from my own personal um, moments with her. So everybody enjoy. have an amazing guest today on our show multiple grand slam champion now hall of famer one of the all-time nicest people i ever met on tour there is no doubt about that mary pierce mary welcome and thank you for joining us here on zoom we're in three different locations for the racket magazine podcast great to see you thank you thank you renee thanks stubsy it's great to be here with you guys and uh yeah what an honor and a privilege and so much fun thank you for having me thanks for that very kind uh welcome and words (laughs) don't worry we're gonna get into how kind you are at some point in this for so many reasons but um i guess mary we always uh sort of start by saying you know tennis huge part of your life how did you stumble into this sport in particular? Great question, and I love telling this story. Um, So when I was about 
six or seven years old, I think I wanted to be a pediatrician already. Like that's what I want to be when I want to grow, when I grow up. <laughs> and, uh, when I was 10 years old, uh, living in uh, Florida, going to school, one of my very best friends was a really good uh, tennis player. And we used to spend time together on the weekends or after school and do our homework together, have dinner and go home. So one day after school, um, I followed her. She had a tennis lesson. I went to the tennis club and you know how Florida is hot and humid. And I wasn't really into sports. I really liked school. So I was like staying inside in the air conditioning. So I wouldn't get hot and sweaty and just watching, you know, from inside. And, uh, and everyone was playing, I think it was called king of the court and around the world or something like that, you know, hit the ball, run around all the kids on the court and having fun. And I was just watching. I was like, Oh, that looks cool. And not that I wanted to play tennis, but I just thought that game looked fun that all the kids were playing. And then someone saw me like, oh, you want to play? And I was like, yeah, that looks like fun. It's like, okay, well, grab your racket and go down on the court and play. I said, well, I don't have a racket. And they said, okay, we'll go down to the pro shop, get a racket and uh, get on the court. I said, okay. So I go to the pro shop, ask for a racket. They said, well, what do you usually use? I'm like, I don't know. I've never played tennis. <laughs> so they like, oh, okay, honey, here, take this racket and go on that court over there. And they pointed me to a court with a coach and two kids probably half my age. So I'm 10 years old at this point. And I go to the court and the coach uh, shows me how to hold the racket, hand tosses me the ball standing on the same side of the court as me. I hit it, goes over the net into the court. And he looks at me, he goes, who told you to come here? I said, well, the lady in the pro shop. He's like, no, wrong court. Go to the next court. So I went to the second court. After a few minutes, the coach said the same thing. Who told you to come here? Well, the coach over there, no, wrong court. So I went to a third court. I ended up staying on that court, never made it to the court where my friend was or all these kids running around playing this game. But after about, you know, 45 minutes, an hour, I was serving and playing points like on this court with all the other kids. Hold on a second. So you were 10 years of age when you started tennis? Yes. How did I not know this? I mean, most people start at like, I mean, you, everyone would think, particularly with your background that we're going to get into, you would have started at like three. Get out there, grab your racket. So you were 10? Yes, I was 10 years old when I started tennis. So when I finished that day and I got off the court, a very tall man came up to me. He's like, hi, I'm Kevin. I am the head pro here at the club. I've never seen you at my club before. What's your name? How old are you? Where are you from? How long have you been playing? And can I sign you to a contract right now? <laughs> I said, my name is Mary. I'm Rachel's friend. I'm 10 years old. I'm from here. And I looked at my watch and I said, well, I've been playing about 45 minutes. And he goes, no, 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 no. Like how many years? I said, well, it's my first day. <laughs> and he says, well, come back tomorrow with your parents. And I said, okay. So I went off to my friend and she's like, I'm in trouble. I probably shouldn't have played. I got to come back with my parents tomorrow. So I went, came back with my parents the next day and my friend and her parents. And I can remember it like it was yesterday standing there, looking over far away, seeing them all talk. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm in trouble. What did I do? And then they come to me and they're like, okay, Mary, you're going to do like Rachel now. You're going to come here and um, have lessons after school three days a week for an hour. And that's how I got into tennis. You're from my hometown of Montreal, uh, although it sounds like most of your childhood was spent in Florida, right? Correct. I was born in Montreal. And then when I was a year old, we moved to America where my dad uh, was from. I, I was waiting for Caitlin to like get that little slip in there. That you were both born in the same city. Okay, go ahead, Caitlin. Well, the reason is because I, I too didn't start playing until I was older because I would visit grandparents in a warm place. So whenever somebody's from Montreal, my first question is where on earth did you get a racket and how did you get, you know, because I was on skis, but I, but I didn't get a racket in my hand until, until much later. And so did you, you know, did you have family members who played or was this just kind of a random happenstance where you were like, oh, it turns out pretty good. Well, my, my mom used to play, like, I remember when I was younger, she used to play like women's league, country club, tennis, um, once in a while on the weekends and stuff like that. And, you know, my mom could play a little bit. Cause when I first started, we used to play and we sit together. And I remember one day we played a set. Uh, and it was like, I was 10, probably in my first year of playing and my mom beat me six. Oh, <laughs> and she felt so bad. And she was really trying not to beat me six. and trying to give me a game. And I was like, I was like, mom, she's like, I tried to give you a game. <laughs> oh my God. We, we, we know where you get your niceness from. I mean, that's, that's, that's hilarious. So, so neither of your parents really pushed you into it. I remember the first time I saw you, I think it was, I want to say it was a little town in the southern part of Italy called Cavadi Torini. 
I oh, think. Wow. I was traveling on the Australian team that got sent away, you know, at, at a junior age to play in these $25,000. It may have been, even been a 10000 And I saw you there for the very first time in the parking lot with your dad. Mm. And that was the first time that I saw you. I think you may have won the tournament there. I'm not sure. But okay. you, I, I remember everyone talking about you in this way that everybody knew you were going to be special and good but also everyone was talking about your circumstances at that time right yeah <laughs> do you want to tell us your circumstances at that time uh yeah to, to, just to back up like we were you living were you guys living in a car together at that point like traveling around in a car and yeah it was uh i'm trying to think that i think it was like how old was I there? Like 14, 15? Yeah. Was that like the tens, 10,000, 25,000? Yes. You know, it's just, just starting. Yeah. You know, I, I just, <laughs> when you said that, like the first thing that came to my mind, because I do have a memory of tournament in Italy, parking lot. And the one that came to my mind is like, I had lost a match and my dad got really mad at me and he slapped me. Is that, and then you're like, oh, I think you won the tournament. Like, oh, no, it wasn't that one. <laughs> no, no. Well, then it wasn't because I just remember how good you were. But I, I remember so distinctly. It's funny how little things stick in your head. And I remember so distinctly seeing that in the parking lot, mm. in that tournament. And I'm fairly certain it was Cavaditarini and it was a 25,000. And I remember hearing the stories about you, your family, and your dad in particular. And I, I'm pretty sure I saw that moment of him yelling at you after you'd lost. So I, it, it, you know, this is a long time ago. I saw 30 years ago, you know, yeah. um, but that's what I remember wow. um, about that. You actually were there and you saw that. Cause that was yeah. the thing that actually popped into my mind when you first said that Cavitrini and parking lots, like what? Um, yeah, so, so circumstances were really, 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 really tough um, to say the least. Um, you know, I think if you back up a little bit to when I first started playing tennis and um, how I got into it and then, you know, that coach that was there saw obviously that I was gifted and talented and had the ability to play tennis like they've been playing for years from the first day. So from my first lesson on, you know, my dad was always there um, every time. So, and my mom, and they, you know, watched and listened. And my dad from the beginning, you know, he would take me on the weekends with a huge shopping cart of balls and for hours feed me balls. And he never played tennis and he didn't know anything about tennis, but he learned as I was learning. And, you know, I look back to what he did and I think it's absolutely amazing and mind-blowing you know to think about how you know he just took his daughter on the weekends didn't know anything but he was willing to to learn and be a student of the game he was willing to watch every lesson that I took listen to what the coach was saying plus watch everything on on tv all the tennis matches plus get the tennis magazine every month plus read the books of all the best players and coaches to learn about technique and just drills and everything so that already first when I look at back, I said that was amazing at what my dad did, but <laughs> there's always methods and ways to train. And, uh, you know, he was very hard. Um, you know, you could say it was quite uh, militant boot camp <laughs> style training um, from a very, very young age. So, you know, my dad was also very um, competitive and he wanted me to be the best and he always wanted me to play great and he always wanted me to beat everybody and that's not possible because you're a human being and no one has ever done that in the history of tennis so so it was hard you know because then he would um he would get mad and he would get yell and he would yell and you know he would be abusive and so you know as i was playing you know my dad became my coach um, more and more and then by the time I was probably 13, he was like my full-time coach, took me out of school and we moved to France where my mom was from. And here I'm doing homeschooling uh, through correspondence courses and training about eight hours a day and um, turned pro at 14. And, you know, my dad was my coach until I was 18. So, you know, those years from like 10 to 18, when he was coaching me and training, we were like... Um, it was like hell on earth because he was so hard and he could be so mean and so scary. And I, you know, grew up like 
scared, you know, almost like every day I was like scared at, you don't know how he's going to react. You don't know what's going to happen, what he's going to say. Is he going to get mad or not? And you try to do your best, but you can't always play great and you can't always win. So it was, it was really, really hard, you know, cause he could be um, aggressive and mean. And, um, you know, obviously I say to myself today that if I wasn't strong, mentally and emotionally and resilient then I would have never made it in tennis um yes the way he trained me also made me tough mentally emotionally physically in every way um but you know I I I wouldn't really I wouldn't wish it on anybody um at the same time I don't it's crazy enough but I don't have any regrets Mm -hmm. because I know that that was my path and what I was called to to go through in my life to to make me who I am today um, to be able to have all the success that I had um, you know and and there's a beautiful story which I'm sure we'll get into later as well about you know the reconciliation uh, with my dad and with with our relationship and all of that you above all have such an obvious joy looking back on your matches seeing you working now and we'll get a lot uh, into that in a little bit but there must have been kind of similar to that day you described on that Florida court just finding a natural joy finding the the embrace of being able to not only be good at something but really enjoy it you must have also I would imagine have enjoyed enough about the game obviously you're resilient and obviously you're incredibly talented but there must have been some kind of joy I would imagine to keep propelling you you know was there another side of that besides you know feeling like maybe it was really tough that you were able to kind of have for yourself where you were like okay but at the end of the day I'm enjoying the the matches I'm enjoying getting better and and getting onto a world stage was that your experience well the really interesting thing was no because I wanted to be a pediatrician (laughs) (laughs) there's still time there's There's time you're young you know what? It's not going to happen now. That's for sure. I'm 45. I'm not going to medical school. <laughs> but my friends do call me Dr. Pierce because I've always loved everything that has to do with health and wellness and all that kind of stuff. And I've always read a lot about it. But um, anyways, no, you know, um, I just was, I was just really good from day one. And, you know, I later on realized that God gave me the talent to play tennis, that that was his plan for my life. And it was evident, but from 10 to 18, I was like doing it because, well, I was good at it, but it was also what I felt uh, I had to do. Like my dad, like, I didn't feel like I had a choice. Like my dad yeah. was, like, I was like, I can't say no. And I was afraid to say, no, I don't want to do this. You know, I don't know. Yep. It was like, I'm really good at this, like really good at this. Yet I'm petrified of this. Yeah. There is no choice. One funny line, though, it's when you said this is what I was born. Remember when we played our final in doubles? Mary and I won a doubles tournament together. In L.A. In <laughs> L.A. And Mary said to me, I don't know if you remember this, but we were walking out on the court in the finals, and she looks at me, and she says, for real, this, I tell this to everybody. Oh, There's some players that are really, like, very technical, and they know this, and they're great with, you know, signals and seeing patterns. And Mary looked at me, and she goes, all right, Stubbsy, tell me what to do. I'm the, du- the, I'm the dumbest best player you've ever played with. And I looked at her and just cracked up because I could, I could tell Mary do X and she would do it so well. She would be like, I'm going to serve in volley now. I'm like, okay, we're going to serve in volley now. And she'd do it. And when we win the point, like there was not a thing that I couldn't tell her to do that she couldn't do. And that is a gift, Mary, you know, to actually go on the court and not worry too much about, the minutia of a game plan and all this sort of stuff. And there are players like you that need to just go out. And I think from the get-go, from your story now, it just was natural to be that good at timing the tennis ball. Yeah. And the thing I was going to add to that is maybe it sounds like, uh, if not joy, then certainly a sense of purpose, right? It, it seems like that's maybe what was more of an animating emotion. Uh, you know, I, and I, as I was growing up, I was like, okay, when I was around 16 years old, I think it was probably like, okay, you know what, I, I, this is, this is like, can't keep living this way. You know, I just can't, I can't wait to be 18 and I'm out of here. You know, and I'm going to, I'm an adult. No one's going to tell me what to do. Can't live like this anymore. <laughs> and so at 18, I basically left, uh, you know, my dad as my coach and my parents divorced. 
and uh, it was a it was a, it was also a scary time and a messy time. I had a bodyguard for a couple of years. I had a restraining order. I mean, there's just so much um, that went on that you don't even know if like people even knew half of what I had been through or what I was going through, and still have to be able to continue to play tennis and train and and at that point, I said, okay. Now I'm 18, now I can do whatever I want. And you know, what do I wanna do? So I basically went and lived with a, a friend of mine and I just said, I'm just gonna do whatever I want. And for three months, I kinda just did nothing and lived almost like a normal person. And just, you know, I'd do the grocery shopping, I'd clean her apartment, I'd make dinner, I'd go to the pool. I just did whatever I felt like doing for the first time in my life. <laughs> and I thought, what do I want to do? Do I want to play tennis? Do I want to keep playing tennis? Do I want to go to school? Because I still hadn't gotten my high school diploma yet. I was still working on it. Um, do I just want to get a job? Like, I can do whatever I want right now. And I just took the time to figure out what I really wanted to do. And after three months, I thought, mm, okay, I think I want to keep playing tennis because, yeah, I'm really good at it. <laughs> I'm pretty successful. And I just thought it would be like a big deal if I quit at that moment in my career you know so I contacted Nick Boliteri I was in Bradenton and I said uh Nick would you coach me so and he said Mary Mary of course <laughs> I will well he said come Monday for a practice session and then we'll see so I felt like I'm going on an interview and I was like so nervous I'm like oh I hope I do good <laughs> hope he says yes because at that point he's like training all the best in the world, men and women champions. So um, yeah, I went and had a great practice session and, and Nick started coaching me. And from that moment on, it was, you know, my decision that now this is what I want to do and I'm doing it. But it wasn't until later in my life um, when I was 25 years old, um, when I became a born again Christian that I understood now all my questions that I had in my life and everything now makes sense. Like, I get it. Like, this is what I was made to do. This was God's plan for my life. He gave me this gift. He gave me this talent. And now I wanted to do everything for him and my best and give him all of the glory. And that's when things started happening in me and in my heart and in my life. And then when I was able to forgive my father for everything that happened for all the hurts, for all the wounds, for everything that I was carrying, the unforgiveness, the pain, the anger, the fear, whatever, everything that I had uh, for my whole life. Then now I'm 25 years old. So this happened in March of 2000 when I became a born again Christian. So 25 years old is the time in my life where my heart was healed. I was able to forgive my dad um, and our relationship was restored. And it was amazing because then I could actually love my dad which is a miracle when you think about everything that happened in the past. And it was like nothing had ever happened. It wasn't me. It was another person in another life. And, um, and I just, uh, from that moment on, lived many miracles. And it's been 20 years um, since then. So that's a really momentous spring in your life because two yeah. incredible things happened that were transformational for you, which is, and I want to hear sort of about the circumstances leading up to both. First of all, you became a born-again Christian. You found this sense of purpose, lightness, you know, obviously the, a, a directive. And also, three months later, you won the French Open. This is a huge year. This is your 20th anniversary of winning this tournament. I can't help but think those two things are maybe related. Yeah, that's an excellent observation and question, Caitlin. Um, it's, uh, yes, because playing... The French Open, as a French player, um, was always the hardest tournament of the year because of so much pressure, so much expectation, you know, so much riding on it. You feel like the whole country is on your shoulders, you know, because when you win, they're happy and celebrating. When you lose, the country's mourning, and it's just like so much pressure. And uh, it's hard to deal with. You know, you ask any player when they're playing their home slam, Stubbsy, hello, Australian Open, you know the feeling. So... It's, it's hard. And when I got there at the French Open in 2000, um, you know, the, the journalists were like, wow, Mary, you know, you look so different. You seem so peaceful and calm on the important points and moments of the match. You're not getting angry, mad and frustrated like you usually do. Like, what have you done? Have you done some kind of mental training or what? What have you done? 
And I was just like, no, I haven't done any mental training. Um, I just know that my life belongs to God and he, my life is in his hands and including my tennis and my results. So I have nothing to worry about. And I'm just going out on the court and giving a hundred percent and having fun and whatever happens happens and what happens will be for my best. And, you know, I either win or I, or I learn and I keep going. So it just really took all the pressure off um, and the stress. And it just helped me to deal with it, to, to realize, you know what, I'm not in control. I can't control if I'm going to play win or if I'm going to play good and win or play bad. and lose. I don't know. I, all I can do is try and give a hundred percent. So that, that experience, um, you know, like I said, of, of becoming a born in Christian just changed me as a person on the inside. And it changed how I saw everything, my life, my tennis, people, relationships. So obviously that's going to have an effect on how I compete as a professional tennis player as well. Did, was there a person or was this sort of germinating in you or, or bubbling up or was it sort of a, a moment? Like how did that sort of come to come into being? You know, at that time when I was 18 and I left my family and everything started happening, um, I also went on like this spiritual journey and spiritually seeking, um, you know, I was raised Catholic and went to Catholic school growing up, went to mass every Sunday. And so, you know, I grew up with that and I believed in God and I prayed. Um, but as I got older and you know, I just felt like things for me weren't matching up and I had questions and I just started seeking for the truth. I had a deep thirst, hunger and longing for the truth. And I just studied different uh, spiritual practices and religions and beliefs. And so I was just really seeking, really, really seeking. I had a lot of questions. And also, despite the success that I had in my career, you know, you look at 19 years old, first Grand Slam final, 20 years old, winning my first Grand Slam, being three in the world, like just on top of the world, having an amazing life, just, you know, everyone looking from the outside thinking, wow, like Mary's got it. This is the life. I want to be her. I want to, I mean, you know, you just think it's just great. Like can't get any better. Right. But like no one can see the inside and no one can see like my pain, my hurting, my suffering, my misery, and my emptiness. Like I always felt like something was missing, but I just couldn't put my finger on it or find it or, or have what could fulfill me. And, you know, I tried with so many different things and nothing was permanent. It was just temporary, you know, something that was going to give me peace or healing for my heart or complete fulfillment and satisfaction. And so I started to become friends um, on the tour with uh, one of the players. Her name is Linda Wild. Stubbsy knows her really well. And I just noticed her and I thought, gosh, you know what? She's, she's really special. She's different than everybody else. She's got something, but I don't know what it is, you know? And then we just became friends. And she just started to speak to me and, you know, about Jesus. And if I knew who he is, I said, of course, as he's Catholic, would you have a personal relationship with him? I'm like, well, no, what is that? That kind of sounds weird. How can you? Because he's not here alive, you know, but he is alive. And so, you know, just explaining to me the gospel and, and, you know, that how, you know, we're born with this in nature and God is holy and perfect. And, you know, you're separated from him just because of your sins. And if you believe in Jesus, that he's the son of God, and you believe that you're a sinner, then you just have to repent of your sins, give him your life and you're born again, and you'll have eternal life and salvation. And I was just like, wow, I've never heard of this before. Like, how come I've never heard of this? And like, I just knew what she was telling me was the truth. It spoke to my heart. And I had a conviction that this is the truth. And I said, Linda, you've got something really special. What is it that you have? And she said, well, I have Jesus in my heart. And I said, well, I don't have Jesus in my heart. So I knew that that what was missing for me in my life. So that's the moment that in March of 2000, I, I woke up one morning. I was in Indian Wells, actually in my hotel room. And I just woke up one morning and I was like, that's it. I'm just done living my life this way. I can't continue another day. And I just prayed. I was in my bed. I just prayed and repented. I just asked the Lord to forgive me for all my sins, for my life. I said, Lord, I give you my life. I want your will, not mine. I want you to be in control, not me. And Jesus come into my heart. And that's the moment that I was born again. And I just felt an incredible peace and in his presence and his love. And I knew that I was forgiven. And I knew that I had salvation, eternal life. And that was the moment that my life just completely changed.
This episode of the Racket Magazine podcast is brought to you by Sergio Tacchini, revitalizing and disrupting the status quo since 1966. Follow them on Instagram at Sergio Tacchini underscore official and go to SergioTacchini.com for more. Enter the promo code RACKETMAG at checkout and you'll get 30% off your order. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You know, it's interesting because we had Chrissy uh, Everett on the pod um, and we've had a lot, you know, different players on the pod and, and you know, obviously I've spoken to a lot of players just on a, in a conversational atmosphere. We might be out having a drink or just whatever. But it's, it's interesting how every single player, there's always something, right? Caitlin and I talk about this. There's always something in someone's life that you're not aware of. And you're like, yeah, everyone's like, you've won these tournaments. You're three in the world. You're making this money. You're famous. Blah, blah, blah. But there's and actors and any, anybody who's well-known knows that there's always something, right? There's always something in someone's life that they're hurting about. Like you said, it's hidden in there. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important, you know, and it, it's, it, it, may, it may be religion, it may be meditation, it may be, um, you know, having a better relationship with their parents, it may, it, whatever it is. It's just, I think it's really important for people to hear your story because it may not work for some people, um, but it might, you know what I mean? And, and, and I think there's always something that you can seek that makes you a better fulfilled person because just because you're winning tennis tournaments and making all this money and famous doesn't mean you're fulfilled. And so I think that's a really great thing. I'm so glad that you found um, him in March because, you know, back in January is when I played you in the finals of the Australian Open. So I'm just, <laughs> whew, thank hey, if I ever have to say thank God, thank God, thank God you didn't find him until March because, you know, that was a, it's, a, it's, a, it's such a good little, uh, it's such an important story though, Mary. It's really, it's, it's part of who you are. And I love that you don't hide it and you talk about it. And it's, it's an important piece of you. But speaking of that Australian Open, I've told Caitlin this because, you know, when you're in those moments of a Grand Slam final, and for me, it was the most important match of my life, right? And I've just had the most amazing victory of my life by winning my first Grand Slam. And I've told Caitlin, the first person I hugged after winning that tournament was you. And you were my opponent. You, you, I, you know, I want people to know, you, before you were born again, you were still this amazingly kind human being, right? You may not have been able to find that special part of you that could make you find your tennis and your happiness, but you're always graceful and gracious. I mean, you, you put your arms out to hug me. It was six, four in the third. It was like this incredibly tough match, but you were the first one to hug me. And the funny thing is on the video, if you watch it, you were so like, this was your moment to do for me. And I was like, oh, and then you see Hingis is like, eh, do I got to do that too? <laughs> but I was so happy for you because it's Australia, Australian Open. You won your own slam. Like, yeah, of course I wanted to win. But, you know, at you and, you know, we were friends too. And I, you know, I was so happy for you. Yeah. But I mean, I want people to know, like, that's a special person to be able to actually take yourself and disappointment away from that and see it from somebody else's perspective. And there's a very rare human being that can do that, Mary. So, but I'm still thankful you didn't find him till now. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit more about winning that home slam. You'd come into this tournament a changed person. The talent was always there, the drive, the, the skills, but you've, you found something else. You found this piece. You know, 
and and you had won a Grand Slam before this, but obviously this, as you noted, is filled with pressure, filled with the hopes of a nation. I don't think a French woman had won the French for since yeah. Susan Longland, right? I mean, decades and decades. In 67, I think. And then obviously Yannick Noah won on the men's side in, what was it, 83? But talk a little bit about, you know, so you go out there, you're feeling a piece. Do you feel the difference in the court? Are you feeling the ball? Are you just feeling like, okay, whatever's going to happen. If I lose this break, no big deal. I'm, I'm, my, I'm, I'm doing as everything that I can in my control and what else is out of my control, you know, is, is being taken care of. Did it feel like that? And were you able to really enjoy it maybe um, this moment? And you were playing against a great clay quarter in Conchita. Yes, yes, for sure. Conchita in the finals, who's awesome on clay. And obviously, if she's in the finals, she's hot and playing really well. Um, So, you know, what's what's really interesting, um, Kayla, that you bring up is that what comes to my mind is my first round on the Chatrier court, center court against Tara Snyder from USA. I win that match, uh, obviously. And as I'm still standing on the court after the match, haven't walked off the court yet, I get this feeling and this little voice inside that says, hmm, maybe this is your year. And I thought, oh, wow, that's interesting. Where did that come from? Okay. Seriously? Um, did it feel yeah. like it was within you or did, did it feel like some kind of other? Like it was like a voice inside of me that was like, maybe this is your year. And I was like, hmm, okay. I'm not, okay, wow. Like, but I, and I didn't say anything to anyone. Like I kept that to myself. Good um, idea. I just went about my merry way every day, day by day, match by match. And I just thought, mm, okay, okay, interesting. And um, yeah, that was, uh, that was my year. So <laughs> I just, you know. It's so funny that you say that because we had Andy Roddick on and he said the same thing that the year he won the US Open, his one grand slam. He said, I went into that tournament. It was the first time I went into that tournament. I felt like I was the guy to beat. Yeah. So uh, it, 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 there could be a, you know. Also, I'm thinking about Kim Kleisters when she was talking about going into the, the U.S. Open final, and it was right after her father had passed away, and their song, a Barry White song, came on in the car before the final, and she just thought, okay, my dad's with me. This is my moment. And it was really, I mean, I'm crying thinking about it now. It was so moving to just feel like, wow, sometimes it sort of feels like maybe the stars align, and it gives you that extra little bit of belief or confidence or, or whatever it is, peace to be able to really execute. And it sounds like that's maybe what's going on the whole time. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. God's in control. That's all I could say. <laughs> Afterwards, you still won another tour final. You obviously had a great career continuing. You made the hall of fame. How, how do you look at that sort of period of time as like a before and after talking about, you know, you made many, many grand slam finals. Um, and Stubbsy told me an incredible story that I would like her to tell now. Sounds incredibly on brand for both of you. And also I had never heard before. Hold on. Just, I, just so you know, I've never told this story publicly <laughs> ever. And I don't like to talk about myself on the, the podcast. Like, but there's so many things about Mary in particular that I started thinking about over the last couple of days, just getting prepared for this part. And I was like, we have been through some really interesting shit together. Okay, <laughs> let's just put it that way. And uh, this one was a pretty good one. In 1995, uh, I made my first Grand Slam final, which to me was a big deal in doubles with Brenda Schultz McCarthy. And uh, we went out on the town that night. This was clearly before you found Jesus as well, Mary, because you're out in the town with me. And uh, it was you and me and three other people that will remain nameless that were quite famous. And um, I had a little too much to drink uh, that night. <laughs> a little. <laughs> and uh, we went to a ho- the hotel, we went to the Peninsula Hotel that I remember. And, uh, and then uh, Mary, you can tell the rest. <laughs> you want me to tell the rest? Okay. Well, because you, you know it, I can't remember a lot of it. That is true. You, 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 you can't remember. So yeah, so we're at this place and uh, we're like a big suite in a hotel, I guess, you know, party. And um, at one point I'm like, where's Renee? I don't Renee. Where's Renee? Where's Renee? Where's Renee? Where's Renee? Looking for Renee, going everywhere, looking for Renee. Can't find Renee. I'm like, oh my gosh, where is she? 
I'm like, she didn't leave. And she couldn't just leave. She wouldn't leave without saying goodbye. She couldn't just leave me here, right? So I'm going around everywhere looking for her. And then all of a sudden, I open a door. (laughs) It's to the bathroom. (laughs) And what do I see? Oh, my gosh. Like, there's Renee laying on the floor. Her head is next to the toilet. (laughs) And I'm like, Renee. And she's not responding like at all. And I'm like touching her and she's not responding. And so like, I literally had like a fright for like half a second. I'm like, oh my gosh, is she dead? I freaked out. And then finally there was some some movement and breathing and I was like, oh my gosh. And so like Renee is like totally out. Like when she says I drank too much, it's like alcohol coma, like gone. So I'm like freaking out. I'm like, okay guys, we need to like do something. So we take her to the hospital and you know, oh, they said, this is what I do remember. You, uh, they said, well, who's going to go with her? Somebody has got to go with her to the hospital. Cause the, they, you guys call an ambulance on me. I just had yeah. alcohol. Okay. We, yeah. We have to call the ambulance because we don't know what's going on. I mean, th- I've never seen this in my life before. <laughs> I was worried. I was scared. So I was like, okay, call the ambulance. Here they come. And then obviously someone's got to go to the hospital with her. She's not going to go alone. And I'm like, okay, well, definitely, like, I'm going. So I get in the ambulance, I go with Renee, and we go to the hospital in the middle of the night in New York. (laughs) And I'm there with you, and I stay with you until you come around, and you wake up, and what happened? I'm like, you know, Renee, like, so this could have been a lot worse. Imagine if when you fell, you could have hit your head on something. You could have seriously hurt yourself. Okay, Mary, you don't need to give me a lecture now. It's like a long time ago, right? I've I've had a couple of drunken stupors in my life, and I've I've managed to thankfully avoid the porcelain toilet head. Like, but I I do remember waking up and seeing you sitting in the corner of my hospital room, and I thought, who does that? And I remember us walking out of the hospital at like 7.30 in the morning, had to call, remember I had to call and change my flight back to Florida. We were supposed to leave at like nine in the morning and we left and I was like, we were on the, and you got me in a cab and you sent me back to my hotel and I'll never forget, I just, there's been two or three things in my life that you have been a part of where I just go, the kindness that comes out of you normally, it's just, it's always been there. And (laughs) That is a story that I had not thought about in a long time, Mary. And here I am living in New York. Um, so yes. where are you? Just kidding. <laughs> so, so I do want to sort of, we have so many things to talk to you about and, and we will have to have you on for a second and maybe even third time. But there's a couple of things that are just so, so amazing about what your life is like now. And I think an interesting way to sort of maybe transition is you won Grand Slams, you won your home slam. You also helped France win a Fed Cup title in 2003, two Fed Cup titles, and you have been involved in the French Tennis Federation for uh, quite some time now working with juniors. I want to talk about Mauritius and what you're doing there kind of separately, but, but tell us a little bit about how that continued involvement and how working with the French Tennis Federation has maybe allowed you to give back, or, or how do you sort of view that um, along with, you know, obviously your commentating career, which is still uh, obviously very, very uh, uh, public and, and profound as well. Yeah, thanks, Caitlin. So I've um, done quite a, a few things um, in tennis because obviously I love tennis and it's part of who I am. It's in my blood and I've done it for so for so long. Um, and I just feel like I've done so much in tennis and for me, it's just normal and natural to want to give back. It's what it's given to me. Um, so when I hurt my knee in... Uh, 2006, uh, I was playing a tournament in Linz. I, uh, you know, had the surgery, rehab, tried to come back, couldn't come back for a couple of years. And then I thought, well, okay, Lord, you're in control of everything. If I should have been back four to six months after surgery, according to my surgeon, still not able to do a full leg extension two years later and still have pain. It's a mystery. No one knows why. So obviously there's something else you want me to do. So I uh, went to Mauritius and I went to be there because I visited a church that I just really felt in my heart it is everything that I believe and want to live and they do a lot of things that well I want to do and so I went there and I was with the church did some bible school went to Africa did some mission trips love Africa um, went to many different countries learned so much um, there and then I started coaching so I coached a few kids uh, from Mauritius and then I brought them to America coached them for about five years 
um, coaching was something that I never thought I was going to do or wanted to do, but I just kind of <laughs> fell into it. <laughs> and obviously nothing happens that I believe by, by coincidence in life. And I discovered that I, I love it. You know, I love being out on the court. I love helping players to see, you know, everything that I've been through um, and what I've learned can help someone else and see that it makes a difference, you know, and uh, that's very satisfying. So um, I did that and um, I got into some commentating, as you said, and uh, enjoyed that. Uh, that was a lot of fun. And um, the French Tennis Federation had asked me to help um, a young player. Um, and it's more like a mentoring role. And um, I did that for, for a while as well. And I, I really, for me, what I love to do is more, more the mentoring and the advising role. Um, because less and less, I, I just don't really want to travel as much as I used to. And I just want to be home more and I want to give back and I want to help, you know, younger players. Mary, speaking of that mentoring, coaching part, I, I, I can't help but think about that period of time from 10 to 18, right, with your dad and how, as you said, that juxtaposition, right, of hating it hating him, loving it, not sure how to feel about him. What were the methods that worked? They probably did work, but to what detriment in your relationship and your life as a person, et cetera, et cetera, right? So I think about this quite often, and you are the perfect person to ask. Going, if you are a parent and you hear you, right? You mm -hmm. go, well, if you treat them mean and you're tough on them and you work them and you you're aggressive against them, like a, you and a Dokic's dad. And, you know, there's a lot, right? Yeah. They go, yeah, but it makes them a champion though, right? How do you explain to someone, yeah, but, you see what I'm saying? Like, because there's going to be people that listen to this or they're going to be people that hear it. And maybe there's that father or that parent out there that's just rough, right? Yeah. To make their kid get the results. Yeah. How do you tell someone that doesn't work? Yeah. So I'm so glad that you brought that up, Sozi. It's a great, um, great, uh, great remark because, you know, at the end of the day, what's the most important thing? Okay. Life, happiness, health, relationships that last far longer than anything else. And it's more important than any money you could make or any trophies that you could win. And yes, you need to train hard. And yes, it's hard work. And yes, it's sacrifice. And yes, it's de dedication uh, and discipline, but not to the detriment of someone's well-being, not to someone's mental health, physical health, emotional well-being, not to destroy a relationship or a family. You can do it in a certain way where, yes, you can work hard and it's not easy but you can still do it in a way that's loving, um, caring, healthy, and it can still become a champion and achieve something. So, you know, the, what, what I went through, like I said, I wouldn't wish it on anybody. Um, and I believe that it can be done um, in a better way. You see what was, how, how I, uh, what I went through. So you don't have to be uh, mean and abusive to create a champion. Um, I don't believe in that. <laughs> I believe that you can create a champion. Yes, working hard and there's tough love and there are days when they don't want to do it, but you got to do it, you know, and, and, um, you know, sometimes, I mean, I, I recall moments where I hated my, my fitness, strength and conditioning coach because he was making me do stuff that I didn't want to do, but he wasn't abusive to me. He worked me hard. And I knew he, 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 he wanted the best for me. He was kind, but he was tough and he was strong, but it was always um, in a healthy way. You know, he made me do stuff like, I don't want to do this. So you're going to do it. And I'm like, I did it. And, you know, underneath I'm like, oh, I hate you, you know, but afterwards I didn't, I was so happy that I did. So, have you, you know, have you witnessed or seen some of that or has anyone come into your circle where you're like, I don't like what I'm seeing here? Um, whether it be just, um, I don't know, uh, even on tour now seeing any kind of players or any juniors or have you experienced that since you stopped playing where you're like, that's an unhealthy situation and I can see it and I feel sorry for that kid. Um, I, I've come I mean, I've come across it. Not, not much. I mean, cause I haven't been 
you know, I've been at some tennis academies and a few tournaments, but yeah, I mean, you, you do sometimes come across it a little bit. And I just think that's, um, that's unfortunate because it doesn't have to be that way. You know, there's, yeah. there's a better way and it, you can still be successful. I have a, I have a more anxious follow-up question just because it sounds like it was a place that kind of captured your heart. You felt like you were at home there. Um, and, and you don't just live there. You're also part of establishing a new, you know, more of a footprint for tennis in that part of the world, which I don't think a lot of people know very much about. Can you talk a little bit more about how you kind of approach that and just, you know, what, what it is you're trying to build and, and how those efforts have made you feel or how, how that feels like it's maybe part of the larger fabric of your life? Where? Sorry, I didn't. In Mauritius. Oh, Mauritius. Sorry, I didn't get that. Um, yeah, well, I, um, I started also a tour for, for women on the ITF Pro Tour. So the $10,000 tournaments is called the Mary Pierce Indian Ocean Series. And I had three tournaments back to back. There's three weeks between French Open and Wimbledon. So after, you know, commentating at the French Open, I'd fly back to Mauritius, have my three weeks of tournaments, then fly to <laughs> Wimbledon and commentate at those Grand Slam events. And, you know, for me, it was um, really important to just have some tournaments in that part of the world because, well, one, I was living there and two, it's considered Africa. And, you know, I wanted to, to give back and create tournaments where the women, the girls in that area have playing opportunities because, you know, in Africa, you don't have a lot of money. It's expensive to travel. There's not, you know, so I wanted to give them opportunities to, well, for different reasons. One, I wanted to, to give the young girls, um, and show them professional tennis to hopefully inspire them to want to get into tennis and to play tennis. And then the young girls in that area to give them an opportunity um, to play tennis and, and to start their career. Cause that's how I started my career. I started playing professional tennis. I started playing the qualifying for the $10,000 tournaments. I had no ranking, had nothing. So I know what it's like, you know, and I know what you need to start your professional career. So to give them that opportunity. So um, yes, I really enjoyed um, having those tournaments. I had one in Reunion Island and then two in Mauritius. Um, and they were, yeah, like I said, the three weeks back to back. And I really, I really enjoyed that and love that because, you know, I had girls, you know, coming from 17 different countries around the world to Mauritius, you know, this little island in the Indian Ocean to play my tournaments. And they would come from all over and they would see me and they would be really surprised. They wouldn't expect to see me. They got, oh, well, it's your tournament, but we didn't think you were going to be here. Or, you know, at least not every day for the three weeks. I, you know, I'm a hands-on like tournament director and the girls would just, you know, come and talk to me and <clears throat> like ask me questions. And, you know, that goes back to the mentoring kind of role. And that's just something that, you know, I really, really loved doing. Yeah, it just strikes me as so cool because you're building something at, at a part of the game where it's probably the most overlooked. And it, if you don't grow up in a country that has a strong tennis tradition, it's it's the it's the thing that will it's stop barrier trying. It's the hugest barrier, right? Like, you know, yes. we talk a lot about pros and how hard it is on the challenger circuit and making it up into the upper echelons, which is no doubt incredibly difficult, but even giving people their first exposure, their first chance of playing really high level tennis, it, which is just such a cool thing. No, I don't think any other athlete that I can think of has done what you've done in that again, in a part of the world that has no, you know, not a, a ton of, of opportunities, which I think speaks to probably your mission and, and your relationship to tennis, which is you want to give, give people what you've had. And I think that's really cool. Exactly. And which actually reminds me and goes back to kind of the beginning of our, of our uh, conversation um, when Renee was saying about, you know, the situation, were you living in your car and kind of what was that like? And, you know, I mean, we had no money, like we were I mean, at 13 years old, my family, my, my dad was my coach. My mom wasn't working because my dad didn't want her to, you know, she's the wife and she's the mom. So she was at home and we needed money to eat, to live. I mean, and to play tennis and you've got to travel to tournaments. So, you know, thank the Lord that there was someone who sponsored me and uh, a friend of my dad's had a friend <laughs> that was, uh, you know, willing to to sponsor me for three years so from 13 to 16 he gave us money you know every year and it was what we lived on as a family to have an apartment to have food 
to be able to travel to tournaments. So yeah, I was in the car, you know, and we drove everywhere to all the tournaments in Europe. Like, you know, we were based in France and we'd drive to Italy. We'd drive to wherever we needed to go. We were in the car. And so half of my life growing up was in the car. You know, I slept a lot in the car. Um, you know, we obviously had hotel rooms, but the cheapest ones you could find. And um, so I know, I know what it's like to not have and to struggle. And I know how important it is to give opportunities to others and that you need, you need the finances, you need the money to be able to, to travel and to play tennis. So I understand um, those struggles. I, I, I think I remember that car as well. It's so weird. I have such little <laughs> vivid memories of you. And I remember thinking to myself, my God, I cannot believe they're all like literally traveling in that car and yeah. literally living in that car. And you're, you know, your, your brother, David, like just everything that he went through as well and yes. the support that he gave you through your, yes. your life and, and what mm. a great guy he was. And I mean, yeah. you, you, your kids turned out pretty well. I tell you. Um, yes. But, you know, last couple of questions because you've been so awesome, Mary. Um, I want to know, like, just one or, one or two of the fun um, matches or moments. Obviously, we, you know, we, the obvious ones are the Grand Slam finals. Yeah, you remember those. Those are amazing. But is there one or two matches where you can you think back to your career and say, gosh, that was so awesome, or rivalries or players that you just loved to play against? Because I mean, you're in a heck of an era of tennis. Yeah, gosh, for sure. I mean, when you think about it, I got on tour in 89, played through the 90s. I mean, it was just when Chris Everett was retiring, and I was, like, so bummed about that because I love, love, love Chris. And, like, that was one player I didn't get to play against. I would have just been, like, so in awe, I think, just being on the court with her. But, um, you know, there was Martina Navratilova, Steffi Graf, Gabriela Sabatini, Jana Novotna, and then we come into the era where Venus and Serena come on tour, and then there's Kim and Justine and Monica and um, Lindsay and Maria, and I mean, Jennifer. <laughs> like Jennifer, and the list just goes on and the on. Resmo, I mean, uh, the top 10, it's like everyone was a number one. It was just so intense and so rich and dense and um arancha conchita i mean it's like it just goes on and on. yeah um it's such a special era because i feel like as well like we all had our own unique personalities that we displayed on court as well you know it wasn't so business-like and you know today it's just so much money involved and it's just like you know it's just it's different back then we interacted with the crowd and we showed our personalities on the court and you know, uh, for me, I think those, the 90s was probably like the best year in, in women's tennis that for me that I've ever seen. Or, and I'm grateful that I could have, I was a part of that and, and lived it. And then obviously 2000 and 2006 when I played, but it's tough. I mean, I've got so many, you know, the Martina Hingis and just like so many great like memories and matches and moments. And I mean, just the friendships that you create on tour and the moments that you have and and that, you know, still being friends today and, um, geez, there's just like so much. <laughs> yeah. the hospital when they're celebrating too hard after their victories, you know. And, you know, even like the Fed Cup ties, you're in a team because, you know, in tennis, you're, you're, it's an individual sport. And then to be in Fed Cup and be with your teammates and also going to Olympics, like that was a highlight for me in my career. I was selected for five Olympics. Um, I played three, um, you know, in uh, Sydney and in, in uh, Beijing. I had injuries, the shoulder and the knee, so I couldn't play those two. But just going to the Olympics was just an amazing experience, being in the village, seeing all the other athletes. Um, you know, obviously just so many incredible moments throughout my whole career that I'm so grateful for that when I think back, I'm like, geez, it's mind-blowing. It's incredible. And then, you know, the pinnacle of it all being inducted into the International Tennis Hall of Fame last year, just really like the massive cherry on top because I like would have never, ever thought or dreamt that. Yes, my dream in tennis was to win the French Open and it came true in 2000 on top of winning the double with Martina Hingis that year. But then to be inducted into the International Tennis Hall of Fame with the players that I admire and respect and watched growing up is just, 
absolutely mind-blowing and completely humbling. So, you know, I've just got so many, you know, so many memories and so many things I can be just so grateful for and so proud of. And yeah, I worked super hard <laughs> and yeah, I went through a lot and, uh, you know, it was definitely, definitely all worth it. I'm so grateful for everything. So, uh, Mary, last question. Um, what, what now? What, what, what Mary Pierce 2020, 2020. Yes. I, can you I mean, obviously we're going through an incredibly difficult moment with COVID. Um, and we're not sure about tennis coming back and when it's coming back. So that obviously is determining a lot of what you're up to right now. But in yeah. a perfect world, um, what's the next, you know, five to 10 years look like for you um, in the sport? And what, what, what do you want to create um, in, those, in, the, in that time as our last question for you today? Uh, big one. Such a great question. Um, thank you for asking that. And it's just I can't believe that it's been 20 years since I won the French Open as we're celebrating my 20 year anniversary this year. It's like, no, that can't be possible. I'm not that old. It hasn't been that long ago. <laughs> um, but it's, it's just amazing. And to think back what's happened in those 20 years, how time flies and to make the most of it. And, you know, which brings me to the state of heart where I am today, you know, how I, what I, how I think and what I feel and what I've been through recently in my life. And, you know, um, my father got very sick in February, 2016, um, with bladder cancer. And, um, you know, I, I was able to be with him and take care of him. And he, uh, passed away in April, 2017, uh, with bladder cancer. And I was so grateful to be able to be with him through that process and experience incredible, like rich times with him. And, at the end is when can I, Mary, just to finish, can, can I ask you how he spoke to you about that time or did he ever speak to you about that time? Um, and did you, were you able to reconciliate all of that period of your life or did you just really let that go? I mean, in simple terms, an apology or uh... like, you know, like I said, when I became born in Kirsten at 25, I had forgiven my dad and then our relationship was reconciled. You know, that's how then I was able to, you know, take care of him and to be with him and to love him. And so, you know, during those times um, when he was sick, you know, <laughs> you could see how it really humbled him because he was a very strong man. You know, he was very strong physically. He was very capable and able. And then, you know, you come to a point where you're not, you know, and, and then he just saw himself and his life and yeah. And, you know, he, one, you know, one day I remember he, I was next to him and beside his bed in the hospital and he just started crying and, you know, through what he had been through, he had been through a lot of pain and we finally figured out how to get his pain under control with the right medication, et cetera, et cetera. And so when he started crying, I said, dad, what's wrong? Are you okay? And he just would cry. And I said, are you in pain? Do you need something? And he would just look at me and he would say like, you know, and he would just say, why do you love me so much? Or he'd say, thank you for everything. And he's just, and he was just so like, so grateful and just so thankful. And he just said, you know, sorry for everything. And um, I said, you know, dad, it's okay. You know, I've, I've forgiven you already and I love you. And, you know, it's the heart of the Lord for you. And he's given me this love and this heart for you. And, um, you know, I think for me, that's just one of the most beautiful stories and the greatest miracle of my life after being born again is, is being able to forgive and love my dad and have that relationship and how I was able to take care of him. And at the end, when the doctors told him, you know, Mr. Pierce, you have one to three months left to live it's a shock, you know, and it's, it's something that you only experience. Well, it's like, for me, it was something that you only watch in a movie. Like this isn't real. Like, mm -hmm. is this real, real life? Is this really happening? You know? And, and it's just so, I mean, there's not even like words to explain how impactful that is in your life. And it really made me think, and, you know, just seeing my dad pass away after that, like 10 days later, it went very quickly. And I said to myself, okay, Mary, what do you want to do now? You know, what if today was your last day? You know, there are these cliches. Yes, of course. If today's your last day, how would you live it? It's a cliche, but you know what? It's for real. Like that was a reality for me. You don't, I, because I'm 45 and super healthy doesn't mean I'm going to live another 40 years. Who knows how long I'm going to be here for? Could be my last day. Could be 10 years. Could be, who knows? So I want to live answering your question. I want to live now every day 
yes, as if it was my last day. And what do I want to do? You know, I want to wake up in the morning. I want to be excited about what I'm doing. I want to be passionate about what I'm doing. And I want it to be something that's going to have an impact globally. And I want to touch people's hearts and see their lives impacted and changed for the better. And that's the desire of my heart today. And so I'm working on, you know, I've got a few different like ideas and projects and things are in the pipeline and, but you know, uh, nothing yet that I can actually say at the moment, but, um, that is, that is where I am and that is the desire of my heart. And that's, um, what I feel is my calling and my mission. Well, I'm shocked that uh, Caitlin actually made it through that whole story without completely losing it because she is the crier of the two of us. Although I am quite a, I thought I would, was a crier until I met Caitlin. So um, Mary, um, you're just, you're just such, you haven't changed from the moment I met you, you haven't changed. I know that you've certainly trans, you know, transformed through this in finding Christianity and that piece of you, mm-hmm. you always stood tall to me. You had your shoulders back, you had your head up. It didn't matter what was being thrown at you. You always had that posture that just is so unmistakable in a gracious champion, not a champion, a gracious champion. And I just feel like you epitomize that. I'm so thankful that you, you know, decided to come and do the pod with us. I hope people listen to this and find a different maybe something that they hadn't heard from you or known about you in the past. But um, one thing is I can't believe you actually started only playing tennis at 10. And <laughs> second of all, I promise you when I tell you this, people listening to this, you haven't changed a bit. You're amazing. Thank you, Stubbsy. Well, that really touches my heart very deeply. And, you know, you're very special to me as well. I love you so much. and just grateful that we're friends and that I could be here with you guys today and thank you so much for having me letting me share you know part of my life and of my story and you know I just really pray that if it could help somebody what I've been through or if it could touch someone's heart or impact them or give them some kind of motivation or inspiration or hope um, that you know no matter sometimes how bad things might look or what people might say but just you know to believe in yourself and that little voice in your inside and your heart and and just to follow your heart and to follow your gut and your intuition it never leads you wrong and just to believe in yourself and in your dreams and to have dreams and to go for them because nothing is impossible and that's it for this episode of the racket magazine podcast thanks for listening our host is renee stubbs our co-host and producer is me caitlin thompson music by internationally renowned dj stretch armstrong thanks to tim Ruggieri and the team at acast find us at racketmag.com podcast and subscribe to us at any of your favorite podcatchers deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.